Welcome to the Capital Beach Podcast. I am Derek Brockbank. I am your host for the podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that talks about coastal policy with federal policy officials and, and decision makers. Uh, really excited to be at NOAA today, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, and uh, excited to be joined by a guest, Mark Osler, who is the Senior Advisor for Coastal Inundation and Resilience. We've had a lot of folks with extensive titles, but I think Mark might take the cake with Senior Advisor for Coastal Inundation and Resilience. Really glad to have you here today, Mark. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Derek. It's great to see you. Always good to catch up. Um, yeah, Mark has. Uh, Mark and I have Go back a little ways. Mark had been on the uh, ASBPA board for a number of years, uh, certainly before I started there, um, and was on the board until he until he moved over here to NOAA. Before we get into our interview today, we do need to take a, a quick second to talk about our sponsors, which is again uh, ASBPA. So I'm I'm thanking myself again, which is always a little awkward. But American Shore and Beach Preservation Association is having our National Coastal Conference coming up October 22nd to 25th. There is still time to register. It's going to be a great event. Um, since we're here at NOAA, I'll highlight the fact that Jeff Payne is going to be um, welcoming us. He's going to be giving a quick uh, quick keynote at the start of the conference. Jeff is um, what is what is Jeff's exact title now? Jeff is a director of the NOAA's Office for Coastal Management. And so I, I know he's pleased about the opportunity to to be with you and address the group. And he is based in Charleston, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Myrtle Beach. He is a a, a real real good guy and has been at sort of the senior levels of NOAA for a while. I know he was the deputy director for a little while. So uh, really glad to have him there. And we'll also be giving a little, uh, a little, you know, moment or ceremony for Margaret Davidson, who passed away just a couple of years ago and is a, you know, huge champion for the coast and someone that I think we all, all remember fondly. Mark, did you get a chance to work with Margaret at all? Well, like a lot of people, I knew Margaret. Anyone that was in her orbit would know Margaret. I don't think that Margaret would have known me. I didn't get to work in the trenches with her, but she was uh, an inspiration and, and continues to be. Uh, and her legacy is is very important to this agency and this topic of coastal resilience. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think everyone who sort of had a chance to to know Margaret felt like they knew her, even if she didn't know them. So looking forward to our conference again. Still time to register October 22nd to 25th in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So Mark, let's let's dive in. I teased you a little bit with your extensive title, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what that means and, and what you do here at NOAA? Happy to, Derek. So NOAA's mission overall is to understand and predict changes in the climate, changes in weather, oceans, and the coasts, and then to share that knowledge with others and to conserve and manage our, our coastal resources and ecosystem services. And so through the process of delivering that mission, there are many aspects of our work that are pertinent to coastal resilience, but there is no one home for coastal resilience organizationally in NOAA. So my role is of an integrator, uh, providing vision and energy around how all of those different pieces can connect and actually serve the public to further the science of coastal resilience, further capacity building, and public understanding, and ultimately reducing risk, economic impact, ecological impact of hazards at the coast. So your position, it sounds like, really brings together various different agencies, different, depart or different departments within NOAA, um, and I do want to get to a little bit about how all that works. would love to dive into your background just a little bit, give folks an understanding of sort of what brought you into this role. You are fairly new here at NOAA and, and previously had worked in the private sector. Can you just maybe just 
tell us a little bit about your background, what got you into coastal in the first place, and and then how's that path led you to NOAA? Yeah, thanks, Derek. I the start with the love of the ocean, like a lot of us in this business, start with actually a place and a childhood near the water and just growing a connection and a fondness for the, the beauty and the uh, all of the majesty and enjoyment that we can get from being near the ocean. I had decent grades in science and math. In high school, uh, you have the guidance counselor saying, hey, kid, you should try engineering in college. I didn't even know what engineering was. <laughs> But I ended up enrolling at Lehigh University, which is a strong engineering program. I took a degree in civil engineering there after seeing in a freshman overview, there is a professor named Bob Sorensen, who is a former uh, engineer for the Army Corps of Engineers. And he had a slide of a wave flume and designing a breakwater cross section in the wave flume. And of all the things that I saw of what engineering could be, I hunted him down after that presentation said, Bob, my name's Mark. I don't know what that was, but I want to do that. Hmm. And so he worked with me. He was very influential early in my education and developing a passion uh, for the coast and the science of, of the coast. So I took that degree in civil engineering. I spent three years in industry focused on computer modeling and aiding coastal design, and then went back to graduate school at University of Delaware to take a master's degree. And as my career progressed in the coastal engineering field, increasingly we were being asked to use these computational models and design insights to look at questions of coastal flood risk more so than just coastal design. And like anyone who's working in this coastal risk space, you are immediately struck by how multi-layered and multifaceted these challenges are. And so you have these complex questions that are faced by federal, state, local, tribal governments, uh, how do their challenges fit in with what can be provided by the federal science agencies, by the regulation, with industry, with NGOs? And so I grew increasingly interested in those societal complexities uh, in addition to the kind of traditional science and more nerdy complexities, which I still like. Mm -hmm. But when I was looking at how to make a bigger impact in this space, there is there is really no place like NOAA where you have actually the mandate and you have the expertise to address coastal resilience across all of those various fields. And that was an opportunity I, I couldn't pass up and, and uh, bid a fond farewell to my time in industry and in June 2018 started this role. I think that's a great point. I certainly, you certainly think of all the, the coastal, all the agencies that do coastal work. You know, Army Corps of Engineers are sort of by nature the engineers. U.S. Geological Survey are sort of by nature the, the geologists. But when you think about NOAA, or at least when I think about NOAA, it's really that broadly encompassing coastal. You've got the social scientists, you've got the uh, oceanographers, you've got the, the, the geologists, the ecologists. It really brings a lot of those pieces together. Yeah. Um, Noah talks a lot about research to operations mm -hmm. and this, this whole life cycle of how we perform science, understand it, and deliver it to the public. And that, in my mind, is the central broad spectrum of services that is required around questions of coastal resilience. It's really an applied science. Resilience is an applied science. And Noah invites a lot of different expertise to contribute to that. 
talk a bit more about that. Resilience is an applied science. So, you know, resilience is such a buzzword these days, and it's certainly something that all the coastal agencies are talking about. So how is NOAA applying resilience throughout its various programs? What is that doing? What does it mean? What does resilience mean to, to NOAA? Resilience in NOAA in coastal resilience specifically, I would start by describing the concept of a, of a community being able to build and bounce back after some disruption, maybe a, a hazard like a hurricane or coastal storms or increased impacts from high tide flooding and sunny day. And so rather than simply reacting to those impacts, the concept of resilience is centered around a knowledge and preparedness of those, uh, about those impacts and then positioning yourself to withstand that disruption and, and become stronger afterwards. And so that example is around communities, and that is true. I would broaden it to also include almost any organization. It could be a, a state government, could be a tribal government. Uh, it should also properly include both human systems and ecosystems. And so We've seen increased impacts from the past hurricane seasons on things like marshes and coral reef systems and beach systems. Uh, there are resilience components in those fields as well. And then there are certainly connections in with water chemistry, with harmful algal blooms and hypoxia, some of the coral bleaching that we've seen. And so these are all types of coastal hazards, all of which need both science policy and investment to actually prepare for, understand, and become stronger uh, against to limit those impacts. Resilience is something that all these communities need, whether or not we had climate change, sea level rise, all the impacts that we're seeing with that. But certainly one common theme we hear from many decision makers, many scientists is, is climate change only exacerbates that, only makes resilience more important. How have you seen from the resilience side, I know NOAA has a lot of original research around atmospheric, you know, is providing a lot of the, the hard data around climate change. But from a resilience side, how have you seen NOAA shift and evolve and, and really bring in some of those climate impacts into the work that they're doing, So you're doing? Yeah, I, there's two parts to that in my mind. There, there's the idea, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us in the Wayback Machine. Okay. Okay. So... President Thomas Jefferson in 1807 ordered the survey of the coast saying that we are a maritime nation. We need to understand how to have safe commerce and navigation on our shoreline. So this is things like charting the coastal ocean waters. How deep is the water? Where are the hazards? Mm -hmm. uh, it relates to understanding where is our shoreline and how is our shoreline moving over time uh, and then in modern times into things like vertical land motion. So that those concepts have been central to NOAA's science and services since our inception. Those foundational products are the foundation for coastal resilience in and of themselves. That if you are trying to address coastal resilience in a place that is maybe part of the developing world, I had the privilege of uh, leading a project in Antarctica mm -hmm. where there's no vertical uh, survey control, there's no benchmarks, there's no nothing. And so it's very hard when you're trying to answer the fundamental question, where is the water? Where is the land? When is the water going to be on parts of the land where it's not usually at? Those things all require basic, basic science services that are foundational to NOAA's mission and have been for a long time. 
And so measuring of coastal water levels through our tide stations, monitoring and predicting the local weather forecasts, both sunny day and, and storm systems. Tying into what we manage here is the National Spatial Reference System. So when you pull out your phone and you have Google Maps up and Google has a blue dot that shows you where you're standing on the Earth, that is the National Spatial Reference System connecting all the global GPS satellites to actually help you and help the Google software know exactly where you are, what direction you're facing, and where you're heading. So if you're trying to build a coastal protection or to measure vertical change in a coastal marsh over time, you have to know where you are on the planet. Literally, it has to be mm -hmm. uh, an authoritative, unchanging reference frame. So those are foundational things that NOAA produces without which we couldn't do any of the more advanced work that we do. So that's one answer mm -hmm. is that our core services uh, enable resilience in the first place. And when we work internationally, we talk first and foremost about establishing those foundational data. Secondarily, certainly in our time of a changing climate and increased risks and impacts to the coast, there are more and more products and services that are being asked for nationally and provided by NOAA, both around uh, new research and expanding our knowledge of how, why, where, and when sea level rise is changing, and then also into mapping flood risk and helping communicate some of that information into knowledge at the local level to aid decision makers in, in making good decisions for themselves. So you're looking at some of that foundational science, the foundational data gathering, and then providing the tools that decision make, local decision makers and I suppose national decision makers too can use to set policies, set management procedures, stuff like that. That's right. And so some examples of those products specifically, uh, NOAA runs the Digital Coast, which mm -hmm. you I'm sure are familiar with, which is a invaluable treasure trove of coastal resilience information, both science and mapping, but also education, outreach, helping people understand how to how to discuss these issues and raise local capacity. We have done a lot of science on the role of natural infrastructure and mm -hmm. what it can how it can play in in the toolbox of resilience. And then NOAA, like a lot of federal agencies, has uh, grant programs and pushes money outside of the door. And so we have, in the last year, contributed over $8 million to coral reef preservation and science. And then an exciting innovation, which I know you are familiar with, is the Title IX National Coastal Resilience Fund, which NOAA co-executes with the National Fish and Wildlife Federation. And that's a federal-private partnership, includes Shell Oil and Transree. And so that's $30 million in federal monies, which are matched more than one-to-one -one by other monies. And so those efforts are going to promote coastal resilience on the local scale, helping to restore, increase, and strengthen those communities and those ecosystems. Yeah, that's a great program. We've, we've mentioned that before, but it's, it's $30 million plus for local communities, uh, local community organizations, NGOs to apply to do coastal resilience projects locally. Um, it's been at budgeted, you said, at $30 million. In the last disaster supplemental, I believe there was an additional $50 million uh, for impacted so, areas. So, uh, you know, good opportunities for communities who want to do good coastal resilience projects to get involved. Um, I think you can probably just Google NOAA or, or NIFWIF, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, 
community resilience grants, and you'll you'll find out more information on that. Yeah. So we started getting into this, and you sort of te- led off with you, your role being that intermediary between a number of, of different departments. I feel like I've been working with NOAA for 10 years, and I still find out new programs that NOAA has. Um, you know, I'm just going to list off a, a few, and you can add on to that. But maybe uh, you know, National Ocean Service, the Ocean uh, Office of Coastal Management, which is under that. You've got the Sea Grant institutions, which are all the the universities. I've explained them to my mom as the the land grant institutions for the coast. You've got the Office of Research, which is sort of a whole separate arm that deals with all the coastal science. Uh, National Marine Fisheries Service. I mean, NOAA actually administers part of the Endangered Species Act for all marine species. And I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of others. So this is a broadly open-ended question. Can you talk a bit about how, how those agencies work together and a little bit about how you help them work together even better? Sure. The, the basic understanding for NOAA is we di- we're divided into six big chunks. Four of those chunks, the last word in their title is service. And so they are delivering products and information either internally across the federal government and or to the public. They are about concrete deliverables, delivering observations and science. So those service parts are the ocean service, the weather service, the marine fishery service, and then environmental data and information service, which is centered around satellites and earth observations from space. Okay. So those are our four service parts. So there's two more. One is the research arm, which you noted. And they are kind of underlying all of those services and providing uh, new cutting edge research and making sure that those service providers have access to the the best and latest research in their fields of practice. And then the final piece of the puzzle is uh, aviation and marine operations. So these are the big white planes and boats Mm. that go around with the NOAA logo. And the planes are the hurricane hunters and flying the post-disaster uh, imagery along our coast. And then the boats are the, the giant research vessels that are cruising the oceans and, and uh, conducting science missions on the oceans. That's so, great. I'd never actually heard it explained that way, that you have the four services which provide services to communities and people and then the, the two almost operational aspects that underpin all of those, both the, the infrastructure, the boats and the planes, as well as the research. That's really good. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I just really like that. Keep tell, uh, how, how do you interact between those uh, services? Yeah. So as I was alluding to earlier, each of those or many of those, not all, but many have aspects of their services or of their science that relate to some part of the data, information, knowledge sharing, capacity building sort of spectrum of activities that coastal resilience touches on. And so I can do a a quick survey. I'm sure I will leave something out by accident. But so inside a National Ocean Service, we mentioned the Office for Coastal Management and uh, the idea of of coastal and ocean risk reduction and preparedness, uh, as well as place-based preservation of our natural uh, ecosystems and and national marine uh, monuments. And so though there are a number of programs inside of the Ocean Service that touch centrally on, on coastal resilience. So Sea Grant is in the research part of mm-hmm. NOAA. And so this is a partnership with 33 academic institutions and extension programs. Your analogy for your, for your mom uh, uh, being analogous to the land grant program is a solid one. 
Uh, and so these are important partners, uh, both in executing and communicating science in their localities, but also in helping to build the next generation of, of coastal scientists. And then in the Marine Fisheries Service, the main connection with resilience where I work with is in Fisheries Office of Habitat Conservation. And so they are concerned with preserving and protecting fish habitat. Uh, and it's, these are usually in our boundary areas or along the bottom of the floor. And boundary mm -hmm. areas is my own jargon for coral reefs, mangroves, estuaries, beaches, these sort of transition areas from mm -hmm. land to sea. The ones that are under the most stress are also the nursery grounds quite often mm -hmm. uh, on up into the estuarine and the riverine system. And so folks working in the resilience space understand that there are co-benefits between uh, habitat conservation and physical risk reduction, uh, as well as floodplain management, responsible use of floodplains. And so we work with them a lot on both the corals and the estuarine side to find areas to, to kind of share our message together and basically stand up at the same time and say, yes, these, these uh, issues are important. A really recent example is post Maria, there was substantial damage to the reefs around Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. actually parts of the reef being broken from the wave action. It was so violent. You had pieces of the coral reef breaking and falling off to the ground. And so Office of Habitat Conservation and other parts of NOAA took up with funding from FEMA and requests from the local government to go do uh, damage surveys to mm -hmm. figure out how extensive was the damage and also then to send in scientific divers and repair that damage. Mm. Uh, which was critical to the economic recovery of Puerto Rico around their, their tourism industry. So really nice connection there of how that uh, sort of resilience and ecosystem services was connecting in real time uh, and then partnership with another federal agency. And then the last piece in this quick overview is the Office of Research, where we have folks doing cutting-edge science and making sure that our, our services and products out in the real world are founded on the very best, latest science. And so they, they conduct their work across seven labs across the U.S. And these are world-class scientists studying all aspects of fishery science, ocean acidification, corals, climate impacts. And so there are important, uh, there is an important connection between the work that NOAA does on the ground, either with other federal agencies, with communities. There are always needs that are expressed in those dialogues of, well, here's a science gap that we have. How do we get that filled? And so we work hard at NOAA to aggregate those needs and then push them into our uh, agency-wide research pipeline so that they get serviced by our research arm and, and kind of come through the process and end up delivering products that are, are useful and important on the ground. We don't do that alone. We do that in partnership with a lot of other federal science agencies, but it's a really important part of NOAA's business model is that using our end services in the public sphere to define research requirements and needs right at the beginning of the science process. Hmm. It's really good. We had a, our last last podcast I did was with some of the folks at the U.S. Coastal Research Program, which is an interagency collaborative. Um, NOAA is a part of that, uh, but it, the same kind of issues came up. How do we take 
the needs of the on-the-ground managers, the on-the-ground you know folks that are doing some of the coastal management who who don't necessarily think in terms of what kind of research is needed and, and making sure that, that that is getting translated back to the researchers. So really interesting to hear that Noah's thinking the same way there. Um, I guess it makes sense. So when you talk about collaboration, Noah's a big a big agency. You've sort of given a high level overview of a lot of different programs. Where would you like to see, or where do you think Noah is doing really well at integrating, and, and where could Noah do a better job of collaborating across program lines, or collaborating with maybe even potentially other agencies in the federal family? We are doing a good job today in a lot of fronts, particularly around this this science and service delivery of delivering information to the public that is actionable and needed on the ground. One of our gaps in my mind is geographic coverage and temporal coverage. So if you are on the U.S. East Coast, you likely are in a data-rich environment, which has allowed NOAA to produce a whole host of products as sea level rise viewer. We've uh, been present in uh, raising local capacity and helping communities understand how to connect this science with their own decision making. Uh, there is a, a so there are those services which I think are providing great value on the ground. And yet they are not consistently available if you are in the rural Pacific Northwest or if you are in the Caribbean or even uh, sparser data might be the U.S. territories in Mm -hmm. the Pacific. It starts to become more difficult to stitch together all of these data to create the products and services that you might have an appetite for. There is a a whole round of discussion uh, in 2018, which is ongoing, but with the state of Alaska and the mapping community mm-hmm. and the fishing community in Alaska, uh, asking NOAA for more information and more decision support tools. And part of the challenge in Alaska specifically is, well, it's a really hard place to work. <laughs> we have underinvested as a country in all of those foundational services that I mentioned to you earlier. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a difficulty in creating actionable kind of second order uh, products after those foundational products. And so we are working hard at that to fill those gaps. You mentioned the Coastal Research Program, which is fantastic. And I mentioned the the need to connect those public needs on the ground with, with NOAA's research cycle, which we do a decent job of. One of our biggest challenges as a federal family is one of coordination. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we could use more resources and there's plenty of need and only increasing need for these services to be delivered nationally. And yet it often takes a lot of energy around defining what everyone across the federal family, what are their superpowers? Mm-hmm. How do they stick together? Those superpowers are different in different moments. Mm -hmm. There may be uh, an event-based superpower that doesn't exist in the same way to help long-range planning. Or there may be geographic focus, that if there is a large civil works program going on from the Army Corps of Engineers, they probably have the best data in all aspects about anything related to that part. But go, go in a different part of that watershed or upstream or a different part of the coast where they're not active, And then, so maybe it's another federal agency stepping in with that information. And so I have been, uh, in my early days, spending time in dialogue, particularly with FEMA, with the Army Corps, uh, with the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, and recently with NASA, JPL, on understanding and 
first for myself and then hopefully for others, just roughly what are those swim lanes? Where do those superpowers align? Where are the gaps? And how do we as a federal community communicate to the public who's doing what, where, and when, but also then uh, make coherent requests for, for resources to do more of what everyone is doing? And that to me is a, a central challenge that I think we see good connections across federal agencies at the program to program level, that if you are a, uh, a super user in a part of a federal program that has a specific need and a specific mission, you likely know your counterparts in the other federal agencies who can help you with your problem or support you with your effort. Those connections are not as strong as they need to be kind of at the executive level, mm. at the program level. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I have the privilege of of taking on here in this role is a, a convener of those dialogues and, and educating myself. And I hope by virtue of doing that, helping to define more broadly where everyone's superpowers align. That's great. So again, just sort of recapping, the first point was helping serve, a, NOAA could do a better job as, as probably many agencies could in serving some of the underserved communities, some of the more rural areas, the West Coast areas. And then the last point I think was a really good one of just how at an executive level, how at that sort of senior level, federal agencies can can coordinate and ensure that everyone is doing the work they need to, but is is allowing that work to, that, that work gets integrated and folks know what lanes they're in. I, I like that analogy. Yeah. And so again, on the other underserved communities, that is often not because there isn't care or, or time or attention spent. It, it is often because of lack of foundational data mm -hmm. to actually build any sort of scientific understanding sure. uh, at, the, at the complexity that's needed to make sense of these challenges. Sure. Yeah. I mean, particularly when you mentioned that Pacific Territories or, or Alaska, they're just <laughs> physically, they're just a long way away and it's a bit more challenging to get some of that data. Yeah. Great. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of want to wrap up. This has been a really interesting uh, perspective from across NOAA. I look forward to hopefully doing more podcasts where we can dive into specific programs, dive a bit deeper. But I think you've been a, a great opportunity to give us sort of a broad brush perspective. I did also real quickly want to thank uh, Brady Phillips, the communications team here at NOAA who's helped set this up. Uh, got us to actually record from the, the radio studio here in NOAA. So we've had hopefully some good acoustics. And as we wrap up, my final question to, to most of our guests is talking a bit about taking a personal anecdote. But can you tell us a, a favorite beach or coastal area, something that really brings love and passion into your life? Well, through my career, I've had the pleasure and the privilege to travel to a whole bunch of diverse places, both in the U.S. and outside of. And so certainly the Gulf Coast, the Great Lakes, the uh, Pacific and Atlantic Coast have spent time in Alaska. Pacific Islands, I mentioned getting to go and see the coast in Antarctica, which was eye-opening. Like most people that I talk to, the love of the ocean is very place-based, and it mm -hmm. is maybe some of the first times that you remember you remember as a child coming to the ocean and spending time with it. So for me, that's where I grew up, which is south coast of Massachusetts. This is Cape Cod. This is Martha's Vineyard. And th these are beaches I've been to every year of my life, as often as I can get to. And now I have had the pleasure of bringing my kids to the beach, teaching them how to fish, how to catch crabs, what a scallop looks like, how to dig clams, uh, all of that 
is just uh, a tremendous privilege and a, a really important part of my recharging my passion for this work uh, as, as often as I can get back. And so that to me, when I think of the coast, I, I'm a more of an estuaries guy than a blue water guy. And I am thinking specifically of the kind of East Coast, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard setting for me. Is there a specific estuary or, or coast or beach that you think of when someone says, where's your, where's your happy place? What's, what's, the, what's the one you think of? So that's the easternmost beach on Martha's Vineyard. If you look at the East Coast, it's a straight north-south line. It's a beautiful, uh, unspoiled, sandy beach. It's managed by the Trustees of Reservations, large part up in Massachusetts. And that, that is my special place. There are parts of that beach that I have spent time in every year of my life that I feel like I know every nook and cranny. I can sense the changes from sea level rise and see those impacts and feel those changes uh, intimately as if it were uh, changes to a family member as they go through their life. I am uh, deeply connected with that place and watching how it's changing over time. Well, that's lovely, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like we've learned a lot about you and Anoa. Really appreciate the work that you're doing and, and the work that Noah's doing. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Derek. Thank you. Thanks.